Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We don't, uh, I don't want to take any time here though with uh, just prattling on because uh, one of our favorite guests is on the line and we got a ton to talk about today coming out of Hamilton City Hall over the past little while, including this afternoon. Um, there is, uh, there was a debate today and this, we knew this was coming because it's been talked about for the last number of days about whether the city should put some new bylaw in effect that would put restrictions or even a ban on anti-abortion flyers. Some of these flyers have graphic images. And so the question was, should these things be disallowed or should there be some sort of ruling or rules put on these photos so they can't just be given to anybody or put in any home or should there be a warning or what should happen with that? Let me bring in John Best. He is publisher of the Bay Observer. Always love having John on here. John, how are you today? Doing well, Scott. Thanks. I appreciate this. Look, this is, I know that this is a topic that a lot of people have very strong feelings about, and some people are very passionate on both sides of this argument. I wonder though, if this is the kind of thing that the city should be wading into. And I, and the only reason, well, one of the reasons I asked is Brad Clark brought it up. He was the lone seemingly dissent, not dissenting voice, but cautionary voice today that I heard at council saying, look, the, the charter, whether we like it or not, the charter allows people to have freedom of expression and of their religion and of their causes and things like that. And we may just be asking for a, a lawsuit suing if the city were to sell, tell someone they couldn't do this. Is, the, is this really what the city should be spending its time on? Well, anything to do with freedom of expression is clearly not a municipal matter. Um, uh, you know, it's a federal matter. It's covered by our constitution. Having said that, uh, you know, they're obviously, I mean, my, my, you know, this whole issue of graphic images and people picketing abortion clinics with signs with uh, pictures on them, my point would be, does it work? And the answer is obviously it does not. It doesn't do any good at all. Um, and and it is, you know, it, it's kind of a nuisance and it's kind of an ugly thing. And uh, reading the story, I think the part that um, sort of registered with me was the impact that this would have on a on a woman who has terminated a pregnancy and maybe had to go through uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, soul searching uh, leading up to that. So it, there's no question it's hurtful. There's no question it's harmful. Uh, there's also no question that it doesn't do a damn bit of good. Uh, I don't think it's changed anybody's mind on the subject. So, you know, I, I think this uh, bylaw, if it ever turns into a bylaw, is going to have limited impact because it doesn't have anything to do with Canada Post. So presumably uh, materials could still be distributed that way. Uh, for those of us who live on the mountain, we, many of us still have mailboxes, but we don't have home delivery. So somebody just distributing flyers walking up and down the street, the uh, mailbox might get cleaned out once a month. So as a practical matter, you know, the I, I don't think the messaging does anything for the people that want to distribute them. But, um, you know, if you're actually getting into the legalities of it, Scott, I, I don't know uh, really what a municipality can do. Well, and that's, and see, John, here's the concern I have with it is not, I mean, I hear what you're saying about all those points. And I think you, you, you have, you bring merit to some of those points, to many of those points, but you know, the city also today was talking about, well, should we have some sort of flag rule? So what flags could fly because people come to the city and they want us to put up their flag and 
you know, if someone were to say, can we hang a Confederate flag? There's no real rule. I, I, as soon as you start getting into freedom of speech, I think you're opening a huge Pandora's box because you politicize, you're inevitably as a city going to politicize this because as soon as you turn one down, because you say, that's not what we support, you have taken a side. And I don't know that that is, unless, you know, there, there are some things that fine. I mean, we don't want to hang the swastika yeah, I, for sure. But I just, I think the city is best to just leave this one alone. Honestly, I do. And I understand what you said about, you know, people could be hurt by this. It's not something, I don't think the city could win a lawsuit. If, if they tried to stop this and someone sued them, I think they lose. And so... Whether it's effective or not, I just, I, I don't see the upside to the city wading into this one. Well, uh, let's face it. This is a, a, a quite a performative council. Uh, we see a lot of these kind of debates and, and I don't want to minimize the harm that, uh, that may be done to uh, people that are victimized nope, by, nope. by these images, but uh, it's really not a municipal matter. Uh, uh, we we really need to stay in our lane. If if people feel strongly about it, they should be petitioning our local MPs. Uh, they should be petitioning the uh, the senior gov- the only senior government that really has power to regulate this, and uh, not be foisting issues on a municipal council that, frankly, the municipal council can they can pass a bylaw, but as you say, it could be challenged, and. Uh, to me, uh, sometimes it's, you know, I know the temptation is th- to respond to everything, but sometimes I think you just have to ignore crazy yeah. people. No, I, 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 I agree that you don't respond to everything. And, and, you know, we could get into something here about, so what if somebody on a different political issue or a different issue on a different political side put up some image that someone else found offensive? Do we then have to start getting into some sort of group or committee to decide what's offensive and what can be shown. Like you can start going down a really, really convoluted and dark path if you start doing that. Well, and and with social media, we've become addicted to inflicting advice on others. I mean, I I object to these images personally, uh, but on the other hand, I would also object to somebody telling me I have to keep the thermostat at 65 and wear a sweater. (laughs) You know, what happened to mind your own business? John, just before we get to the HSR situation, just one uh, little follow-up on what we were just talking about. They did also talk, uh, and this was about banning images or things like that in the city. They did also talk today about flags and flying witch flags and things like that. Should the city, would the city not make it just easier on itself if it simply said, we're going to fly the Canadian flag and the city of Hamilton flag and the Ontario flag, and don't ask us about any else, because that's what we're flying. So we don't have to get ourselves into a mix of what's allowed or what isn't. Um, I, I don't know where these other flags are coming from. Uh, maybe they're connected with, uh, you know, some of the cities we're twinned with, but I think there's a protocol for flying uh, foreign flags. There's a kind of a national protocol. But uh, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what flags, uh, I didn't follow that thing very closely, Scott, to be honest. So I'm not sure which flags other than those three are being uh, considered. I, I'm not sure. I think it's sort of an open thing that people can request things for special events. And uh, my, my thought is, just, look, just those are the three or whatever. And, you know, there's always call for an exception. If, you know, there was another terror attack, heaven forbid, in the States, you could fly the stars and stripes or something. But anyway. Uh, let's move on to the HSR because this is clearly the story that is going to be the thing 
this week and probably for a while. Are, are you are you anticipating a quick resolution to this, or are you sort of digging in for what could be a bit of a wait? Well, as your news stories have been saying, the last time this happened, it was a three-month strike, which would just be a disaster uh, for for Hamilton, not only the inconvenience for the people that rely on the buses uh, to get around, but, um, you know, we've we've lost so much ridership during the pandemic. It looks like it was sort of getting back to not quite where it was in uh, 2019, but it was definitely rebounding. And, you know, the, the HSR has got all these plans. They want to start changing routes and make the system you know they want to expand the system even though the ridership is not there uh hoping that that will lead to greater usage and and with the price of gasoline getting up around seven dollars a gallon now i i think there is an incentive for people to take another look at transit if if the reliability and the frequency can be improved uh, it's always great in the lower city along the king route you can get a bus about every three minutes but you know, when you get into other parts of town, it's an issue. So the timing couldn't be worse. Uh, both sides have dug in very uh, hard. Um, you know, the, the city uh, issued a statement yesterday where they said, uh, you know, the big problem is they got to sit down with 11 more unions. And if they start, if, if 5% becomes the 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 floor, um, we're going to be in a, in a real problem with uh with our budget coming up because i'm sure they haven't budgeted for five percent so uh, we this will all back up into council in their in their budget deliberations yep. Yep. as well because it could take many millions of dollars out of uh out of what is already a pretty strained uh, budget book john did we've had eric tuck on this station a number of times i've talked to him a number of times leading up to this and he was very clear he didn't hide around it didn't dance around it when the city gave very large, in some cases, 15% total increases to non-union employees, to some of them, that registered with him and with his union, and they say, if there's money for them, there's money for us. Was it a mistake by the city to do those kind of raises first off before all these negotiations so that it just set the floor for what everybody expects? Well, I, yes, I I think it was. I, I think uh, that that set a tone that that obviously uh, all the uh, unionized workers were going to um, emulate, and and of course the other thing was that we've we've gone through almost a decade, I would say, of of wage restraint, uh, both at the public sector and, and at the private sector. Everybody being asked to do more with less. Uh, and the you know the provincial government had their one percent uh, wage freeze on all provincial workers. So we've been through a period where jobs were scarce and employers, whether they be public or private sector, were able to uh, you know pretty much have their way when it came to compensation. And uh, now we're in a situation where there seem to be a lot of uh, vacancies and it's hard to fill positions and you're competing with other uh, jurisdictions. So it's a bit of a seller's market right now when it comes to wages, and uh, it'll be interesting to see. Now, I, I did hear Eric today on on your station suggesting, so the city's at three, they're at five, and I thought I heard Eric say, maybe there's something in between. Yeah, there's room. Come uh, to us. And I think, I, I think yeah. that's called four. 
Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, so th- there may be an opportunity for this to be a short strike. Um, but it, I, I don't think there's any question, unless they're meeting now, and I think they both walked away from the table, uh, there definitely looks like there's not going to be any buses tomorrow morning mm-hmm. for people, and I hope they've made some arrangements. Yesterday, just as I was starting the show here, I got a press release from the city that was outlining where the negotiations stand, and I had expressed a bit of surprise at the numbers of what was offered and what the union is looking for as an average wage for their bus drivers, and I got a number, I got a ton of response, people on both sides saying, you don't know how hard it is to be a bus driver when I talked about the number, and others saying, that's crazy. Then, If the union were to get what it wants, the bus drivers would make an annual, a base annual salary after the fourth year of $86,860. Essentially, almost the same amount as a city councillor makes, more on average than a nurse in the city makes, a little bit less than what a starting firefighter makes, and a third more than the median income of people in this city. Is that is that a lot of money? It seems to me that that's a big amount of money And yet that's what now public sector unions, it seems to be the case that we, you know, inflation has hit hard. So you got to pay the public service unions a lot of dough these days. Well, the city thinks it's worth 80,000 a year and the union wants 89. So uh, it's a danger. It's increasingly a a really crappy job. Uh, You're driving a bus. People are ugly. They're grumpy. You got punks sitting in the back row. Um, using the F word to shock uh, older people on the bus. There's there's the increasing risk of violence. Um, it's not a fun job. Uh, and then you of course you got all that going on behind you as you're trying to navigate through uh, traffic and traffic jams, accidents, and then bad weather. So I, whether it's eighty or whether it's eighty nine, I don't think it's outrageous for that particular mm. job. It's it's one of the tougher. Uh, public-facing, public sector jobs that you can have. No, it is, look, it is clearly a tough job. I, I wrote to a couple of people yesterday who wrote in, and I, I agree with you uh, that it is a very difficult job. It is, it just strikes me with what you said about how we, you know, things were held back, salaries were held back, but since coming out of COVID, it appears the public sector is trying and in many cases succeeding in catching up with those lost wages, private sector, that's not happening. And I don't know if those in the public sector realize that the people in the private sector are not getting 20% or 15% increases over four years. Many of them are getting none of this. It's, it's a really interesting thing now that we're coming out of this and one half of the economy or one group is catching up for lost time. And I don't think they're realizing that they are alone. They don't care. Well, I mean, that's, that you know, I'm sorry. Uh, I like Eric Tuck and and I respect the bus drivers, but they frankly don't care what the private sector are going through. Uh, they have a union which enables them to do collective bargaining and strike activity, and uh, they're going to get what they can get. It's an interesting one. We will. I'm sure that we will be talking about this because I'm not confident that this is going to end really soon. I hope I'm wrong, but I am not really confident this is going to end soon. I'm sure the next time John and I are talking, uh, HSR may be back on the agenda. Always appreciate it, John. Thanks for doing this. Good to be with you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Unsurprisingly, there are strong feelings in this country about what is happening in the Middle East, what's happening in Israel and Gaza, and we now have some polling numbers to back that up and to say how Canadians are feeling. 
John Rowe is a research associate with Angus Reid that has done this. Joins us now. John, how are you today? Doing well. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Look, I I was waiting for this to come out because it was, I don't want to say, you know, your job is obvious. This may have been one of the most obvious questions to ask, and I'm glad somebody did because it's... um, it's really interesting and not exactly what I was expecting. What were you, before we get into the numbers, what were you expecting based on what you'd seen, based on reactions, based on news, all the rest of the stuff? What did you think Canadians were going to think about this? Uh, I tend not to, I guess, uh, pre-assume too really? much okay. going into these kind of polls because I feel like oftentimes uh, the polling kind of goes against your assumptions. You're not really too sure what people are thinking, especially on like an issue like this, until you kind of go out and ask people uh, questions kind of around these topics. Um, so yeah, I think going into it, I didn't, I don't know if I really had much of a preconceived notion of what, what Canadians were thinking. So the numbers seem to show that we're not exactly evenly split, but we're relatively evenly split on who you're sympathetic to and who's doing the right thing and who's doing too much and all the rest, right? It's sort of, it's close to down the middle. Yeah. So about 28% of Canadians say that their sympathies kind of lie more with the Israelis in this conflict between Israelis and Palestinians in in Gaza. Uh, About 31% say it's about equal. So they're kind of, they have sympathies on both sides and 18% say they lie more with the Palestinians. So overall, there is a bit more of a leaning towards the, the side of Israel as far as the sympathies of Canadians go, but it is fairly split down the middle. The one area where this doesn't seem to be the case, and I was looking through the numbers earlier and I'm, I don't know how to interpret this. 18 to 34-year-old women seem to lean more strongly towards supporting Palestine, less strongly toward Israel, more strongly toward Israel is overreacting. A, a lot of areas, they seem to be the outlier in this group. Yeah, and, and that does typically is the case where if we do kind of see uh, kind of the polar opposites on these sorts of polls, uh, you do see kind of 18 to 34 year old women on one side and then kind of 55 year and older men on the other side. So 46% of 55 and older men say their sympathies lie more with Israel in this. And then on the flip side of that, it's the 18 to 34 year old women who say 30, 35% say they lie more with the Palestinians. So it, that is, does seem to be the case. And, they, and those two groups are, have very different kind of political leanings in a lot of ways too. So usually 18 to 34 year old women are more likely to say they're going to vote NDP. 55 plus men are kind of more towards conservatives. So th- those splits kind of are evident in a lot of other polling as well. And on that, I, I, I politically and which party they might support or whether they're left-leaning or right-leaning. I I absolutely understand that, and I get that part of it. What I don't get is one of the things that we heard of on October the 7th, one of the things that was done was many women were taken hostage, and we heard about all kinds of ghastly recountings of rapes and women being killed. I thought, yes, I understand 18 to 34-year-old women might be leaning more left, but in this circumstance with those harrowing stories, I thought they might say, wait a second, I can't support that under any circumstances. I'm puzzled by how they would overlook that. Yeah, it, I mean, they a majority of women that age do agree with the statement that Israel has a right to exist and defend itself. So there are some leanings that way that they kind of understand, I think, where kind of the response from Israel is coming from, where it's like they were attacked on October 7th and all these terrible things happened. But I think on the same time, there's a bit of maybe 
they they feel like a lot of what the response has been has been too heavy handed and too too much even despite what what has kind of happened uh and maybe that's where they're coming from on, on these kind of issues maybe although and when you say they're uh, about israel being um uh has a right to defend itself, only six in 10 of those 18 to 34 old women, according to your numbers, only 60%, uh, only uh, three in five say that Israel has a right to exist. That's, that's a, to me, that's a shocking number that 40% of that group would not even acknowledge the right to exist for a country. And it, it, it is, I guess, important to note on a lot of these issues and in typical with, with our polling, I think, is what we see as well as that 18 to 34 year old women are kind of the more likely to not express opinions as well. So in the case of that statement, one in five said that they don't know, they don't have an opinion on it. Uh, so, I mean, it does, I think. Yeah, if you're looking at it from like, okay, well, that that is a statement that people should agree with, even saying don't know, kind of, I guess, runs in the face of that. But only one in, f- one in five say that they disagree with that statement kind of outright. But in general, we do see 18 to 34 year old women tend to kind of not take sides on issues and not have answers more so than other uh, demographics. Is there any way to know that, I mean, there has been an awful lot of public activity on this issue. There's been protests, there's been marches, and there's been all kinds of things. Is there any way to know if that has had an impact on any of this? Or the, are the people who are marching, is that already set in, so it's probably not going to affect polling numbers? Yeah, I mean... That'd be an interesting thing to ask as to whether or not people have witnessed these protests and whether or not that's kind of influenced their opinions on this matter. Uh, It's not something that we've asked about before, um, but obviously I think as well, like social media probably plays a big, a strong role in this, where I think I've seen articles saying that like things like TikTok do tend to lean towards more the Palestinian side than the Israeli side, whereas like the posts that go viral on there in, in that sense. So maybe that plays a factor in it as well. Um, but that, yeah, that was something that we, that would be interesting to look at, but not something we asked here. Right near the end of your numbers, and this may be the most depressing, although I, I would argue probably accurate. Uh, ultimately, do you think there's a chance for lasting peace between Israelis and Palestinians? Overwhelmingly, the numbers across the board, no. Uh, again, depressing, but I'm not at all surprised that that's the case. Yeah, and it's uh, trended towards no over time. Uh, we we asked this question, or we asked this question with this survey, but we also we, we borrowed it from a Gallup survey in 1994, uh, where 40% or 38% of Canadians say yes, they they believe there's a chance for lasting peace, and only and 40% said no. So Canada was more Canadians were more split at that time and believing that maybe lasting peace was possible. But uh, I feel like maybe this kind of most recent flare-up of violence is people feel is very difficult to get over and seeing the way that these attacks have kind of played out in media, it kind of is hard to imagine at this time that there could be lasting peace in the region. Uh, we got to go, but one of the other things, when w- many of these questions as they were asked, uh, where does your sympathy lie? And it was with Israel or Palestine. Do you believe that when that question, when those questions were formulated, is that because you believe that most people have conflated Hamas with Palestine, that those two are one? Because a lot of people would say, well, we're not really talking about the Palestinians. We're talking about Hamas, which is the government in a terror group. But in, is it the belief that for many people, when they hear this, Hamas is sort of captured in Palestine, in the Palestinians? Yeah. I think to a certain extent that is true. 
uh, that those two groups are kind of conflated a lot of times in these discussions. But we did kind of ask a question along those lines, asking whether or not if you believe that protesting in support of Palestinians in general is the same as supporting Hamas. So 30 percent or 29 percent of Canadians say that uh, that's the same as supporting Hamas. So there is like a group of Canadians who believe kind of those two groups are one and the same. Uh, but 47 percent of Canadians say that it's not the same as supporting Hamas. So I think there is a little bit of understanding of the nuance there. But that that does, I think, probably play a factor as well. That's It's, it's really I mean, we always love having you on, John, and your numbers are always fascinating because they're, uh, you say you don't think about these things or prejudge. I'm, I'm constantly surprised by where people's voices and where their opinions are. Uh, that is John Rowe, Research Associate with Angus Reid. Always love to, you taking time to do this, John. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I gotta say, of, of all the things, and like a lot of this is kind of predictable, uh, I think. A lot of this is kind of predictable. And a lot of this is, I would agree with what John just said at the end there, driven in some part for some people by TikTok and other things. I think that has a huge impact. And, you know, yesterday, if you were listening to the show, we had Sabrina Medeau on who had just watched the, at the Israeli consulate, the movie, for lack of a better word, of live body cams and other cams of the Hamas attack. I, I, I absolutely, absolutely a thousand percent believe that if based on what I read and heard and what you heard about it, that if other people saw that as horrifying as it was, as gross as it was, as horrendous as it was, that the opinions that are in this poll would change. And again, I, I just, I, I'm struggling. I'm not an 18 to 34 year old woman. Clearly I am struggling to understand. I understand politically they may be far more small L liberal, but for a group that by and large university students would fall into that category and young professional women for a group that has fought at a, at a time when on university campuses and college campuses and in society, this has been a generation that more maybe than any other group of women has fought against sexual assault, sexual harassment, the Me Too movement, understanding that violent rapes were committed by Hamas as part of this. And children, toddlers were slaughtered. I, I would have thought that that group, even though they lean left clearly, would have said in this case, though, that I, I don't support that. And yet only three in five say Israel even has a right to exist. And if you look at the numbers, they are more supportive of the other side. I, I'm, I, I'm baffled by it. I'm baffled by it. I didn't even ask John. Here was the number maybe that I should have asked that was the most surprising. We've got to run. 2% of Canadians who were polled said they had never heard anything about this story. Where could you possibly have been for the last month to never have been aware of what is going on? Those 2%, they, they must have all spent the last month in a vegetative state in the hospital. How could you possibly otherwise not have known about this? That's the most, that may be the most frightening thing that people are that out of touch. 2% of Canadians have so little interest in what's going on in the world. They don't even know about this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have been talking so much 
over the last number of months on this show, on other shows on the station, all the local media, all the local people, all the local politicians, probably you with your friends and family have discussed this. Housing is just such an issue. And whether it's a lack of housing or whether it's a lack of affordable housing or whether it's a combination, any of that, housing is just such a difficult topic in this city. Well, someone came up with an idea the other day, and that is if you drive down uh, in the Westdale area just off of Wilson Street there, pull in on, say, Whitney, and you will see a whole bunch of wartime-style, wartime-era homes. They aren't necessarily huge. They aren't necessarily flashy, but they are still standing. They are lovely homes. They were built in the war, built when people were coming home from the war, and they provided a home for a lot of soldiers and a lot of other people at around that time in an affordable and effective way to give them a house. Well, it has been suggested that maybe it's time to return to that. Maybe wartime housing should be revisited, that we should find some plots of empty land in this city and just build tons of as much as we can fit in within the urban boundary, uh, build as much wartime housing, not the big mansions, wartime houses, just to be able to create the product that we need. Frank Clayton is a senior research fellow with the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at Toronto Metropolitan University. Joins us now. Frank, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. I really appreciate coming on to talk about this because it's, it's, Put it this way, we're looking for creative ideas. This is a creative idea. I just wonder, is this something that could work? (laughs) Well, when the city of Hamilton doesn't want to expand its urban boundaries, it won't work at all. (laughs) Because all that that housing was built on greenfield lands. And they had plentiful supply of greenfield lands. And that's why the the housing was relatively cheap, because the land was cheap. But the city of Hamilton has decided... They don't want to expand their boundaries, and the minister who uh, wanted to expand the boundaries backed off now, the Minister of Housing and Municipal Affairs, uh, and so there's no darn way you could get any kind of cheap housing out uh, in Hamilton because you can't redevelop existing built-up lands and expect them to be cheap. So you're, okay, so that's a very valid point that the people who already own swaths of land are not going to be giving it away cheaply, developers and those who have the land. So you've already got a a pretty giant investments even before you get to the homes. Let, let's, let's establish that that is a truism because I think it probably is. Well, no, let's go back a step. Okay. The, the city of Hamilton council has said no expansion of the urban area. So Correct. the developers have the land, but they, they can't develop it. They can't put housing on it. So therefore the land has to be in the build up urban area, which means apartments, not single detached houses or small houses or, semi-detached or townhouses, it means apartments. That was, okay, so that was going to be my next point. So we know that there is still land available within the urban boundary, but that was going to be my next question is, uh, is anybody, if that's the case, is anybody, anybody going to want to put smaller, modest homes there, or are you going to want to sell mansions or, as you say, apartments, because there's a lot more money in that? Okay, well, first of all, again, the city council doesn't want any expansion of its urban boundary, so there's, no, there's hardly any land that could be dealt out for this purpose. And developers will build whatever the market bears. So if the market's for first-time buyers, they will build smaller houses and smaller lots. In fact, 
the kind of housing that we've been building, if you go to places like North Oakville, you'll see it's a mixture of townhouses, stacked townhouses, and a few little small small lot singles. So so the kind of product we're building instead of you know these small bungalows uh, on uh, larger lots, which were built back after the Second World War, we're building now, we're building what we call stacked townhouses and so on. But we have to have the land for that. And the city of Hamilton has said, we don't want any more land for urban development outside of our urban boundaries. So, so it's, it's, they're, they're saying no matter what, they don't want it. The city of Hamilton and the province, they do own some chunks of land within the city that potentially, within the urban boundary, that potentially could be redeveloped. Now, if... And again, I, I, I hear exactly what you've been saying, and you make an awful lot of sense. But if they were to decide, you know what, we've got 25 acres somewhere. I don't know where that would be, but we've got 10 acres. And that something was sitting on. And you know what, if we can put 100 or 150 of these smaller, modest homes there, we will allow the developer to build it and give that land. Like, does it make any sense at all to be building single homes today anyway, or with the population growth that we're expecting, is any government simply going to be saying, we don't want this at all. We just want apartments and condos. Well, it depends what, what, uh, what, uh, what the government's supposed to do. Seven, uh, the surveys done by the Toronto, Region, uh, Real, uh, the, sorry, the Toronto Region Real Estate Board show that uh, going back eight years or so, every year they ask for potential first-time buyers what they want to buy or buyers what they want to buy. And 75 or 80% say they want a single detached house or uh-huh. a detached house or a townhouse, not an apartment. So, you know, the politicians are saying, oh, everybody should be in an apartment in the build-up area. But the people don't want that. So what's going to happen if they don't build that kind of housing, the kind of housing that people want in Hamilton, they move to Welland and Brantford and Woodstock, and then they commute back to, to Hamilton. Is that a bad thing? And I'm not being sarcastic, and I'm not being cynical. Well, if if you're a city like this, I, I, uh, well, the environment, the environmentalists think it's bad because the fact you're commuting more means more greenhouse gases. So, uh, so the whole thing defeats itself. Uh, so, really, what we need is a mixture of uh, uh, of uh, more housing in the built-up area. Which, so if somebody had 25 acres of land, say say the city of Hamilton had 25 acres of land, the price of the land would be such that to make it affordable, they would have to build apartments. No question about it. There's no, no no more single detached houses in that land. But if they want to provide singles and semis and townhouses, we need greenfield lands or farmlands on the fringe of Hamilton to, to, to do that. And again, back, so we bring it full circle. And if you own a farm, let's say, that's within the urban boundary, you're probably looking at sitting on a landmine, uh, not a landmine, a gold mine, op- complete opposite, a gold mine, and you're saying, I'm not giving this away for nothing. This is worth a lot of money. And as soon as you do that, there's no such thing as affordable housing anymore. No, the, uh, the, uh, you know, housing prices are supply and demand. And if you don't have the land, and land divides it, gets its value residually. So if you can't put really cheap housing on it, uh, uh, the price of the land is going to be very expensive. And you can't, you know, because the demand is such, the land is going to be expensive. So therefore, expensive land means dense, densified housing. I want to go to the um, the point you made a second ago about people's desires for what they really want, because we have heard, and who knows if these numbers are going to pan out, but we've heard, I think the number is that by 2050, we're expecting another 230,000 people in, in Hamilton. That's, it's an extraordinary influx 
you're absolutely right that there's just no space. You, if you're going to have to have apartments and condos then. There's just no way around that or else we just won't have homes. But what do you do then? How do you make this enticing if uh, all the polls, as you say, say people want single homes? How do you make it enticing to people if they just are not available? Well, if they're not, uh, it's, it's really crazy uh, that, that, that if people who represent a democracy who want something... The politicians come along and say you can't have it. I mean, they'll defeat the politicians ultimately, and we'll get a you'll get a council that says we want to provide lower density housing, you know, single family townhouses for the people who want them. So that's ultimately what will happen. But in the meantime, all you do is push prices up. It does seem interesting. Always, um, I, I don't know what the percentage is. I have not done a poll on this one, but I bet if you went around to almost any city where they're having discussions about urban boundary or about apartments versus single family homes and all the rest, I, I bet you that the percentage of politicians in those cities who live in single family homes would be well into the 90 percentages, at least. It's a, it's an interesting thing that very few seem to be in buildings. There's some, but more often than not, it's, it's people who are already well set who have then decided, well, we're good now. Yeah, we have a little saying uh, here in Toronto that the people that want everybody to be in apartments are those who are living in the old city of Toronto. <laughs> they don't realize that the city of Toronto is only one one third of the whole urban area. You know, the the the, the 905 areas and so on are much bigger than the city of Toronto in terms of population, and they live in their own little bubble. And they think everybody should be in that bubble. What the fact is that people don't want to be in that bubble. Okay, uh, maybe you can answer this, maybe you can't, I'm not sure, because the, everyone's a little bit different, but why do you think that is? Why do you think that people, by and large, don't want to be in an apartment or a condo, but want a home? And maybe that's a really obvious, stupid question, but why, what do you think is the reason behind that? Is it simply that that's how many people have grown up, so that's comfortable, or is it aspirational, or is there something else going on? I think it's generational. Um uh, you know, what, what, what's been happening in the last uh, couple of decades is the millennials, for example, started living in a, you know, staying with home. Many of them stayed home with mom and dad for many years. And then they moved into apartments, uh, small apartments. And then they found a partner. And then they decided to have, a, as I say, a dog or a child. And they said, you know, being on the 30th floor of an apartment isn't the greatest thing when I got a child or a dog. And I would like to have a, a, a garage. I would like to have a driveway. I'd like to have a front door. And I'd like to have a little piece of land. Doesn't have to be huge. Just a little piece of land where I could maybe barbecue or, or take my dog outside and uh, so on. So I don't want to do it, go up the apartment steps. And so this is what's happening as, as the population ages. The millennials are aging now into the prime home buying age groups. And the, and the generation Z is coming up behind. And they're going to want the same thing. It's just a, it's a generational thing. It's a North American uh, as opposed to a European kind of concept. But we have this desire, and the immigrants have the same desire. When they get to Toronto and they get established, they want something. I say, I call it ground-related housing, single semi-townhouse, not a, anything but a high-rise apartment. It's so interesting you mention Europe because this is often the argument that is given that, look, people in Europe live in apartments, people in Europe all their lives, never, most of them, many of them never have a single family home. And so all it's going to take is a couple generations for people to get used to the idea and then they'll really like it. Do you buy that? Uh, no, I see nothing wrong with extending, you know, our growth, we got so much growth happening in the greater Golden Horseshoe, uh, the, you know, Toronto, uh, Hamilton greater area that, 
we need apartments, yes. We, we need things like stacked townhouses, but we also need lower density housing. We have to go up and we have to go out. And the environmentalists in the city of Hamilton Council says, oh, no, you can't go out. You can just go up. Well, that means going out will be other places. You're pushing people farther out, and you ultimately be pushing the jobs farther out. So, uh, Ham, you know, so Hamiltonians uh, just end up with higher prices and living in apartments. It's a fascinating discussion. Uh, Frank Clayton, Senior Research Fellow for the Center for Urban Research and Land Development at the University, uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing okay, this. Okay, good night. That is, um, I don't, I'd love to hear from you. And I mean, we've got our text line filling up with people for the quiz answer, but I'd love to hear from you on our text line as well. I'd love to know if you agree with him. I do. I do agree with him on the idea that most people, not all, most people still want their own single family home. There are, there are, there are plenty of folks, I'm not suggesting to the contrary, there are plenty of folks who are very happy in a condo. You know, my parents, now my parents had a single family home as most people of their generation did, but as they got older, the condo that they lived in served them very well because if they traveled or something, you can just lock the door and away you go. You don't have snow to shovel or grass to cut or a roof to worry about. That's something else. But I think that for many people, especially younger people growing up, as Frank just pointed out, as you start a family or as you have a pet or as you get married or have a partner or whatever else, I, I do agree with him that the vast majority of people given a choice, if, if, if all was equal and you said here, here you've got $800,000, which is probably the number these days, you can have a choice. I'm going to give you a choice. You can have this single family home or you can have this nice condo right downtown I still think most people take the single family home. And here's the irony. And again, you can tell me if you think I've completely lost it, but I think that many, again, not all, many of the people who argue loudest for downtown living, if you offered them a single family home at the same price as the condo in which they're living, they would take it. Tell me I'm wrong on that one. But I I really believe that many many would take that single family home if it became available for what they were paying right now. It's just that they're so hard to get and they take a lot of work and they're just not available very often and they get into bidding wars and whatever else. But I, I, again, I, I think often the, the argument about downtown living and how the suburbs suck and all the rest, uh, if, if they could, if many people would be happy to live in the suburbs, if such a home was available to them, I really believe that you may say that that's totally wrong, that you would live nowhere, but the downtown and that's fine. That's fine. But I've said this before and I'll say it again, that I thought that I, uh, during the whole urban boundary discussion, and you know what? We're not going to get into the urban boundary discussion. Whether you agree or disagree, it's, it's decided and that's fine. But I did find it very rich that as you drove around in the suburbs, how many people in the suburbs had signs on their lawn for no urban boundary expansion? Understanding that the people, those homes a generation ago were farmland. 
Make no mistake, those, those many of the homes, almost all of the homes in the suburbs a generation ago were on farmland. And so as long as I got my piece of the pie, well, now we can shut everything down. You know, I got, I'm fine with where I am, but no further, no further. If a generation before people had said, you know what, we're just not going to allow growth beyond 10,000 people in Ancaster or 10,000 in Dundas or 10,000 or whatever in Stony Creek, where they would not have had their place. That to me was, was the one thing about this discussion that was very rich is the people who were living in places that a generation ago would have not been there, would not have been allowed to be there now living happily in their suburban home and saying, yeah, but nobody else, nobody else. This is, yeah, I know I'm in suburbia, but, but this is as far as it's got to go. We got to stop here. I'm okay. I'm okay, but not you. That was, that did not make sense to me. And frankly, anybody who was in the, in the suburbs, and I'm sorry if you were one of these people, uh, anybody who was in the suburbs and had one of those signs up or who lobbied exceedingly hard for no green or for no, uh, urban boundary expansion, um, there, there may have been some glass houses and stones just saying, you know, we don't, it's not that we don't love you. You were just fighting a battle that probably you shouldn't have been fighting because your life, your living, your house defeats that argument. Anyway, that's gone now. Uh, the idea of the, uh, the tiny little wartime homes though, it's, it's, it's an interesting one. I just, I agree with Frank. Where do you put them? Where is the land? Land is so expensive now that even if you could build a cheap home, even if you could put together a prefab, A-frame cheap home that doesn't cost that much, by the time you've paid for the land, there's no such thing as affordable anymore. So it kind of defeats the purpose. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.